So today, uh, we are pursuing our new series, uh, and the reason we are looking at the relationship, you know, between man and woman, and the issue of leadership is that everyone in this church would be released according God's call, anointing, and gift. That's really what we're after. Um, and, you know, it's not a personal agenda. It's not a feminist agenda. It's really an issue of freedom for us. That freedom for people to be who they're meant to be. And an issue as well of freedom, the Holy Spirit. So that the activity of the Holy Spirit would be free among us as well. And I love this quote of a very eminent theologian called Gordon Fee. Uh, you could look him up. Really a, amazing reference for us in many areas of the church and doctrinal issue. He makes this um, quote, um, which I really think summarizes very much what we're trying to do, which is thus, my issue in the end is not a feminist agenda an advocacy of women in ministry, even. But rather, it is a spirit agenda, a plea for the release of the spirit from our strictures and structures so that the church might minister to itself and to the world more effectively. That is really the core of the spirit of why we are doing this and why we are talking about this issue. But I thought today I'll start a little bit by my own story, if it's okay. So, yeah, so, you know, up until very, very recently, I would say maybe five years, I too hold the views that women could lead some stuff in the church, but ultimately they needed to be un under the authority of the men who were leading the church. That was my personal view, very strongly. And actually, I led worship teams uh, in many different church contexts, and I would say more than, that's, now that's 30 years I've been doing this, uh, with very many various leaders, and um, my personal understanding, and what I have demonstrated in my life, personally, is that I was always loyal, I was always faithful, and I worked really hard to fulfill the leader's visions. Okay, so that's my dominion, that's where I stand. So let me get the elephant out of the room straight away, okay? I am not a dissident or trying to organize a revolution for my own benefit. And I'm not trying to do things for my own good. It's just a conviction that's creeped on us as a team progressively, okay? Now, what I would say, though, my experience in leadership for over 20 years, it is true that some t somewhere in my heart, you know, I was doing this stuff, but there was a deep frustration. And actually, for many, many, many years, I just could not understand what was the frustration about. Uh, and I think this frustration was mainly to do with the fact that somehow I felt limited and not able to fly with what God had called me to do. Uh, and... Many, on many occasions as well, I felt very much like a second-class citizen in the church. Okay, that is true. Now, if I go back to my childhood, uh, at six years old, my favorite, favorite game is to preach the gospel. Uh, 
So I am on the terrace of my, my flat at that point, and I'm with my brother. My brother is 20 months younger than me. And, you know, I preach the, brother, the, 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 I preach the gospel, and my brother has to put his hand up, answer the gospel. And then I go, okay, baptism time. And then pff, I baptize my, ba- my brother. Then I say, you know, now you need to receive the spirit. Let's pray for, you know, and then I, you know, and it goes on. You know, that's my favorite game. It's true. And my poor brother, you know, is like playing along, you know. Um, as I grew older, it's very odd, but those dreams they started to fade away, okay? And I kind of started to, okay, realize that, oh, okay, ah, okay. In this environment, mm, women can't do that, okay? And actually, even in my own family, um, you know, my parents are amazing, you know, not restricting at all. But it was still a little bit off, like, yeah, your brother will lead a church one day. If you're lucky, you married a leader. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit like that. If you're lucky. <laughs> okay, so um, in, in one sense, four years, it was a little bit like, oh, as a woman, I get to do things if there's a gap and nobody can do it. Or I am obviously 10 times better than that man, so I should take it on. It was a little bit that tension. Um, and to be honest, it didn't help me personally at all because I had already a mind, mind frame of um, achievement and performance. You know, that's how I'm built. So that doesn't help you because then you go into performance mode and say, yeah, I better demonstrate now that I'm really good because otherwise I'm not going to get the opportunity. Yeah. And that's, that's not biblical. That's not of God. So that personally didn't really help me. Uh, sometimes I was ver- working very, very hard, but I wouldn't get the recognition. Sometimes if I disagreed with someone or if I was a bit emotional about someone, uh, something, um, yeah, obviously something was wrong with me. That's, that was the, 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 the line. Um, and so it felt restricted. It felt often that I was ignored. Uh, it felt sometimes I was misjudged. Uh, and not even spoken to. You know, Jamie would be sp- spoken to, but not me. Uh, and I will pass you the detail out of love and honor towards all the great, great people of God I've actually worked with. Okay? So 15 years ago, though, age 35, now you know my age, <laughs> I almost gave up. I really, literally almost gave up. I said to Jamie, do you know what? I will serve your vision. I will lead worship because I love God, so that's not going to change. So I'm going to love God, and I'm going to lead worship for for you. But frankly, I'm done with the church. That was very much what I felt. But at the same moment where I was in that state, quite discouraged and thinking, (laughs) time to give up, uh, Julian Adam came and gave me this prophetic word, and the first line of this prophetic word is literally, and I wrote it down, you are a strong woman, you have been misunderstood, but I want you to know that God loves strong women, and literally, he reprophesied my whole life destiny. So the light went, oh, all right then. You know, I was just like, okay, I was ready to, to, to stop, but God, you obviously have I've got another plan, and I was reignited again. Uh, one day around that period, I remember very, very clearly, I was reading Galatians 1. And in Galatians 1, uh, 
Paul is effectively saying um, that he has been called an, an apostle, not from man, not through man, but through Jesus Christ. And he goes on on describing that it is God who called him. It is God who guided him. So hold on. Pause button. I'm not thinking I'm an apostle. All right. That's not my thinking. But I remember in me, something screamed. The Holy Spirit screamed so loud. Rachel, who has called you? Who has called you by name? Who has trained you? Who has guided you so far? And the penny dropped for me at that point. I was thinking, okay, I just need to grow in confidence. Do you know what? I'm not going to care about the position, the title, what people say, what men think, etc. I'm just going to do what my father says to me to do. That's it. I'm not going to care about much else. And now jumping 10 years later, you know, growing in my faith, reading things like God's General, which is an amazing book of all these, uh, you know, big people of faith, and bumping into testimony of, you know, people like Maria Woodworth Etta, Catherine Kuhlman, and uh, Catherine Booth, and, um, and seeing uh, the testimony uh, and the life of people like Heidi Baker. I'm thinking... Surely, surely God does not make mistake. And I'm left with this dilemma because I still believe at that point that, you know, uh, leaders in the church need to be male. So I'm there and I'm thinking, surely God, God doesn't make any mistake. I'm, I'm, I'm in this vacuum, you know. And uh, so basically I'm, I'm growing, we're growing, and we all start to thinking, oh, hold on, this is not right. Oh, the church need mothers and fathers and they need women. And, but what's going on? And you see, we could have dodged the issue and um, not tell you anything about all of that. And just kind of, you know. But there's two things we did decide to not do. We decided first to not dodge the issue and put it under the carpet. Or the other thing we didn't want to do is just go on the Holy Spirit hunch and not do the homework of looking at the evidence in the Bible for ourselves. So then we went to a journey, and the pile of books we read, if I'm putting them, they're, they're high. It's a high pile of books, with a lot of theological articles, which are very, very complex, looking at both sides. Because we, wanted, we, we were starting to be conv convinced with our heart, but we wanted to know that this perspective had biblical ground. So that's where we went on the journey. And you know, one of the big surprising facts that we found out pretty straight away is there's tons in the Bible written about how the body of Christ should be really working, how there is intersummation in the body of Christ. But actually, not that much, you know, there are some bit, but not that much on per se on how you should organize the church in terms of leadership, Okay. So that's the first thing that really hit me. So now, let me take a little detour and I will come back into, into this. Okay? Who knows that when we read the Bible, we first try to understand the context in which the particular scripture was written before we actually apply it to our situation. Who knows that? Yes. Show me your hands. You're not sleeping. Phew. Okay, so yeah, you know that, that... When you read at a particular scripture, you look at the context in which 
it is written before you apply to yourself, to apply, to make it like a general principle. Okay? And actually, even to understand the context in which it's written, you have to have a kind of an overview and understand where is it in the Bible. You understand that? Yes? So, for example, who knows that the Old Testament and the New Testament are very different in their operating. Who knows that? Yes? We've got the old covenant and the new covenant on the other, on the other, on the other side. Yes? Like, if I said to you today, you come to kill my daughter, I'm just going to come and kill yours. Does it sound right to you? No, he doesn't, does it? Even by the law of this country, I would be quite in trouble. The reason it doesn't sound right is actually what I'm just saying now, it's the mosaic law of the Old Testament of an eye for an eye that the Israelites were applying. But that's the Old Testament, right? But who knows that in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus comes with the Sermon on the Mount and says to me, love your enemies. <laughs> Yeah? That's hard. Who knows? You understand that, yes? So when we read the Bible, we've got to understand, oh, this was written in the context of the Old Testament. This was written in the context of the New Testament. I, this is in the Old Covenant. This is in the New Covenant. In fact, in the New Testament, we are born again entirely new creatures by the Spirit. That didn't exist in the Old Testament. So we are called in the New Testament to walk by the Spirit which is in us because we are brand new. Yes? Actually, in the New Testament, the only law that we have, law, I'll go like this, law, because actually it's when the Pharisee pushed Jesus, Jesus said, yes, if there's a commandment, then is to love God with all your mind and, yeah? and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, the reason why there's not all this, the law in the New Testament is because now the law is supposed to be written in our heart by the Spirit. So basically, if you love God with all your mind, your heart and soul, you allow the Holy Spirit to be expressing you. Yes, and you will obey the commandment because you love God. You will grow into following what he says. Yes, we are becoming his temple. That's very, very different than the Old Testament, where actually in the Old Testament, we had to follow the law. And when we fell short, we had to make a sacrifice to be right. Yeah, actually, the whole point of the Old Testament was, was to show you and me that we can't be righteous in our own right. We needed a savior. We needed Jesus. That's what Galatians 3 verse 24 tells us when he says, the law was your tutor. He was teaching you that you needed a savior. He was coming. My point here, which is very, very important for the issue we're going to talk about. There is a trajectory between the whole and New Testament. The whole Testament was always about showing you you needed a savior. You need Jesus to come. Yes, there is a trajectory in the way we connect to God because in the Old Testament you needed the priest, but now you are the priest. 
yourself. So you connect to God directly. There is a shift on how you relate to each other from Old and New Testament as well. Because now we're told, love your enemy, love your neighbor like yourself. It's not a question of having justice. Or Can you see the shift? And that's why the gospel is so good news. So basically, we got these three major shifts that are uh, really the foundation and very important for what we're talking. First, we are new creature. So the old Adam, the curse is broken. The curse is gone. So everything that Jimmy was talking about, about the genesis and the fall and what it affected us, how it affected us in terms of man and woman, that should be gone. Okay? Now, the second thing is we are not under the law, but under grace and living by the Spirit. So the issues for us is how can we walk by the Spirit? How can we be free to walk by the Spirit? That is the issue of the New Testament. And the third issue which is really important is now, and I'm sure everybody would agree, Jesus is our model. Yes, because Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, and we, all of us, we are the body of Christ. And, you know, he is the one who gives the gifts. So we'll go in a bit um, in, a, in detail for that. So basically, you could see through the whole Bible, okay, a redemptive trajectory that is at work. And one of the redemptive trajectory at work is how Man and woman and the way they've been related have been distorted by the fall and how it's restored progressively throughout the Bible. So let me talk about that a little bit more. Okay, so this is the nice graph to show you the trajectory very quickly. So we started Genesis and we see in Genesis that we equal, we created equal, okay, at the image of God with mandate. Okay, even if we are different, we're not saying man and woman are the same, not at all. But even if we are different and we might have different roles, okay, uh, we are created equal. And then there's the distortion of the fall. And Jamie detailed that really at length last week. So I'm passing and you can listen to the preach. Uh, The second thing, uh, then we have the mosaic law, uh, you know, that are actually written in patriarchal societies. By the way, the societies you see in the Bible, that doesn't mean they have the best way of doing society. They just wear. That's what they wear at the time. So, for example, everything you find in the Old, not everything you find in the Old Testament was God's original plan. I can give you two examples. Uh, polygamy. Okay? So, God cre- created us and said, yeah, you will attach yourself to Adam. You attach yourself to one wife. And we see a little bit later, this king who are following God, who actually have many wives and many concubines. That was not the plan of God. That was not the plan of God. Okay? So, um, then another issue that I can find, uh, you could find in 1 Samuel 8, that it's the people of Israel who demanded a king. So, actually, monarchy as we know it now, it, you know, it's one system. It's not that it's wrong or it's right, but it was not the original plan of God. Actually, clearly when Samuel talked to God, God says, ah, oh, they're doing this because they don't want me as a king directly. So they want a king to rule over them. So 
you have to warn them. You effectively say, go and warn them that if they want a king, this new king will claim his right. So he was tell, God was telling Israel, you want a king? Fine. But effectively, you're going to give a little bit of your freedom away. That's going to be the result. And he gave them a king. That was not God's original plan. He wanted to relate to man and woman directly. It was always his plan. So then we have the Jewish society in overall very patriarchal who is quite tough on women and what they, 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 they're allowed to do or not allowed to do. Uh, but what we see already, and it's the same for, um, well, I'll come back to that in a second, otherwise I'm going to complicate everything. But we could see even in the Old Testament all these little peaks of grace perking out. So, for example, Deborah the judge. Okay? She's suddenly the judge. Uh, Miriam, the prophetess. Uh, we could see as well in the case of Job's daughter. Normally, in the Jewish law, daughters could not inherit uh, their father's uh, property and assets. So they had to remarry, and it was complicated, right? Or they had to, it was passed on to the brother. Anyway, I'm not going to go into detail. But what we see in the case of Job's daughter is actually there was an exception made, made and the daughters of Job were allowed to inherit the, their father's inheritance, okay? Uh, and you see as well women that found favor, uh, like Ruth, like um, Rab, like Abigail, like Esther. You know, you've got a lot of women there who found favor. And we've got this little peak of grace. And then there is this prophetic promises that the spirit is coming uh, and that's for the sons and daughter, and it's in Joel uh, 2.28. In the same way that the birth of Jesus was announced, there's a groaning, there's a groaning. And um, I found this amazing text uh, in Isaiah 43, verse 7. Uh, it says, where are my sons and daughter? I will bring them back. Do not hold them back. Everyone called by my name and created for my glory, whom I have indeed formed and made. So I know this is written in the context of Israel. But when you land on everyone called by my name and you apply that to the New Testament, you know that's everyone, right? Okay? And that's part of the glorious plan of Jesus and his kingdom coming and being um, uh, uh, covering the earth like the, the sea is covering the earth, yeah? And basically his glory to come up through his sons and daughters. That's part of the general picture. Can you see that? So you arrive in the New Testament and you have Jesus. And Jesus, yes, he doesn't rock. He doesn't say, your society is wrong. You need to change them. No. But what he does is he models inclusivity to women. So first thing he does is uh, he teaches women. And actually, by Jewish law, that's completely forbidden. You should not, not teach a woman. A rabbi will never teach a woman. Jesus does. He teach Mary. Uh, uh, Jesus should not have been at the well at 12 o'clock meeting the Samaritan woman. But there, to this woman who's been married many times and living with a man who is not even married, act, actually, he gives the greatest revelation about who he is. Then you have Jesus who defend the woman who was about to be stoned, stoned um, because of adultery. And actually, that again, in Jewish law, 
you woman, you, you've not been faithful to your husband, we stone you. That, that was, that was what, what it was. But Jesus comes and says, well, who has not sinned then for the first stone? Don't you think that's Jesus saying, hey, maybe it takes two to do adultery? <laughs> you know? And you guys, you're not better than, you know. Remember in the New Testament it says, actually thinking about a woman in a, in a bad way, that's the same than adultery. Remember that passage in Matthew? Yeah, so the law here, you know, grace is different, right? Grace is very different. You could see it here in action. And Jesus including woman in revolutionary way. Okay, and let's not forget there's the 12 disciples, but there's a lot of women traveling with the 12 disciples. Okay, um, now Paul clearly treats uh, the woman as well at, as co worker. So you see in Romans 16 a long list of leaders, like Lydia, who lead house churches. Uh, you have Priscilla, who actually taught Paul, because Paul fought, was for a little time with Priscilla and Achilles. Okay, notice the, the order of the names because uh, in the Bible, if you read Acts, you have Barnabas and Paul. And then when Paul is effectively running in his ministry, suddenly he becomes Paul and Barnabas. Okay, well, uh, it's really interesting that you always have Priscilla and Achilles. Could it be that this woman had an extraordinary gift of teaching? Actually, some scholars are saying that it's very possible, we don't know, that uh, Priscilla has written Hebrew. Okay? So there are elements like that. Um, Phoebe delivered the letters of Roman, and like Jamie told you last time, if you delivered a a letter, that means you were entrusted with the message and you were able to explain. So Paul had delegated the responsibility to Phoebe to do that. And it's, um, and as well, there's a mention of Junior, who was a fellow apostle. Uh, let me just tell you, in a, and it's, it's completely true, if you re- research Junior Apostle, you will see that many translations work very hard to make Junior a masculine pronoun, uh, a masculine noun, and kind of like transform the sentence so it wouldn't be seen. But it's there. You know, the fellow apostle, co-workers, okay? So, surely, my point here is, surely, if Paul believed that women couldn't speak in the church, I mean, it would make sense that least, would he? Because clearly, in there, women were teaching, speaking, proactive member of the church, leaders as well, okay? Uh, That is why, my point just before, you always, before you come to a difficult passage, you need to understand in which context it's been written. You need to have an overview of how, where it sits. Okay? So we land at the end into Galatians 3, where the gospel does not make any distinction of race, gender, okay? and as well social class. So there's no slave or there's no master. In Christ, actually, that's the funny thing about grace. It becomes even better. So in Christ, the equality supersedes the original equality found in Genesis 1. So now, it's not only no gender, but no class, no issues of race. It's extraordinary. And actually, the battle, the battle of no Jew, no Greek, we have that battle working out in the Bible straight away. Because uh, remember, Peter has this revelation that uh, people who are not Jewish can still be included in the covenant of grace. Yes. And then he forgets a bit about it. And Paul has to 
remind him, remind Peter, hey, come on, Peter, you started to slid back into favoritism towards the Jewish people, and there is that polemic going on in the Bible that we can read, okay? So, um, no slave, no free, you know, is another interesting one. Although uh, early Christians didn't demolish slavery, there was already element of that, again, creeping. You see Paul, for example, with his relationship with Onemis, uh, on, it's hard, Onesimus, okay? Uh, so he's written to the master Philemon and say, you know, if you find it in your heart, just please free Onesimus. He served me so well. Yeah, it's already there. It's already there. So when you look at the, the way we live by the Spirit, it's obvious slavery is wrong. Okay, it took centuries to get there, but, you know, and often people who justify slavery is because they were reading in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, okay? So ethnicity, social, gender divides, everything all started to break down as we are all called to be son and daughter of the living God. This is amazing news for all of us, all of us. Don't ever feel like a second-class citizen, ever. Don't feel a second-class citizen because you're a man or a woman, but don't feel a second-class citizen because you don't have any education, or for the color of your skin, or because you are born into a certain social background. All of that is smashed away in Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? That's why I entitled that, for all of us. It's for all of us. It's good news for all of us. Okay? So now we've seen, uh, two weeks ago, Jamie uh, talked a lot about that leaders do not have authority over people, but for people to release them. Can you see the body of Christ is called to run with the purpose of God? And we've seen last week that both man and woman have a role in bringing the, the kingdom of God together right together and can you see today what I'm trying to talk about is there is this redemptive trajectory and in the New Testament we are called to live by the Spirit and when the Spirit is there is yes so that's where we're going okay so you are telling me okay but what does it mean for the church structure what sort of structure should we have right you ready By the way, I don't think there's one way of doing things at all. I think there is principle that should reflect the kingdom values and how the kingdom operates. There's not one way to do things. But we should have values that reflect, that is really kingdom values and really uh, reflect what Jesus would do, basically. Actually, Gordon Fee points out many times uh, that there's not such thing as one biblical cultural or socio-economic system that belongs to all human society, and I think that's the same for church. The only thing that matters is how to live our new creation's reality and allow the Holy Spirit to flow and express the new reality of Christ in us. Okay? So, I think the kingdom model should reflect this. I'm going to go through, okay? So don't worry. I think the first thing and at the core of everything is what we see in the Trinity itself is that 
we should organize ourselves around the pursuit of love and unity. Amen. That is the fundamental values that we should all have. Well, the goal is that we are one and we love each other and that everyone is released in the body of Christ. That's why I did a big circle, the body of Christ. We are all released to function at the place we should be according to our goal and our giftings. Okay, that's the main big principle. Now, the second, and actually I should have put it first, Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head. He's the head of the church. Now, have you noticed I didn't put Jesus is the head at the top? Are you going to say, oh, that's not logical. Her head is at the top of the body. Yeah. There's a reason. It's because I want to check this idea that thinking Jesus is the head doesn't mean he's over us. Okay, so I just put it under under for several reasons. First of all, when it says Jesus is has authority over every dominion, and that's in Ephesians one twenty two, you can read it for yourself. It's actually said he has authority over everything and every dominion for the church to the church for the good of the church. It's different translation, so I just gave you three translation right now. Yes. So when he has authority, is to release us, is for the good of us. Okay? Now, in Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, Jesus is the head. He is the chief cornerstone on which the church is built. That means for me, he's talking about Jesus is the foundation, is everything. It's him first. It's from him. It's from him we're going to build. And actually, it's, it's fitting very well. For later on, Jesus say, I will build my church. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Oh, he will build his church. Okay? He's the head of the church. He's building the church. Okay? Now, this is really interesting. Many theologians have, uh, uh, theologian have argued that the word head... In Greek, kephale, it actually means another interpretation of head. There's many, okay? But another interpretation of head is actually source of the river, the source of the river. So when you look at a river, Jesus is the head. He's the beginning. Without him, there's no life. Without him, there's nothing. He's the first and the source of everything. He's the flow of life. There's no church without Jesus. That's as simple as that. Okay? So that's how we understand that Jesus is the head. Now, Jesus is the head means as well that he's a servant king. Do you remember that? He laid down his life so that you and me could gain life. He sacrificed himself. That's the sort of head he is. You know? The other thing, Jesus is the head, means that he is the one who has the authority to appoint gifts, to equip and train the saint to do the stuff. So, so there's still leadership, okay? There's still leaders in the church. But what it is, there are gifts given to the body. That's why I put them in the little circle there. You know, Jesus give gifts. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they work together, okay? And they give gifts of the Holy Spirit and they give... Uh, people who are in ministry full time to equip the saint. 
Okay? So these people are not more than you. It's just they're actually given a gift from God, a grace from God. And they have a job to do, which is to equip you, to train you. Because you see, ultimately, Jesus has authority over everything for the good of the church. So we would have authority over everything as well. And actually, it's very interesting if you read the New Testament, you see the word authority in Greek, exousia, appear around 100 times. And do you know the context of those words? It's actually authority of a sickness, authority to, to cast him in, authority to do the kingdom. So basically, the idea is Jesus, okay, give gifts of leadership, so we will train everyone to have authority over demons to heal the sick and to deal with the thing of the kingdom. So we would be all in power to go and make disciples. That we will all be able to minister to each other. Uh, that we will be able to deal with all kind of problems that comes our way because we, we, can, we have the authority. Can you see how it works? It's slightly different. Okay, so everyone in the body functions according to his gift in mutual submission. We know who is, has the gift of, and we just look for that gift, okay? It's not about hierarchy. It's not hierarchy. Je- Jesus himself didn't put himself as lording over. So no, it's not hierarchical, Okay. But it's the idea that we are all son of daughter. So what we're doing here is we're moving away. When we believe that, what's happening is we're moving away from a model which is very familiar to us because it's a very comforting model and an easy one to understand. And I'm going to show it to you. It's actually what we call the complementarian model where uh, there is a hierarchy. Okay? So the complementarian model that you might find in some churches or every churches will look like this. Okay? And basically, it's a nice cascade of hierarchical cascade where, um, where be- people have the authority and it's delegated to the next person under the next layer. And the foundation text for that is A, what Jamie talked about last week, which is basically uh, complementarian belief that because Adam was created first, he has authority over a woman. And as well, this the articulation of the verse in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, where they believe that God is the head of Jesus, or Christ in the text, that Christ is the head of man, and that man is the head of woman. So complementary read that, and basically thought that this is the biblical way of doing church. So, immediately, there is a problem with that. The first problem is what I just told you, is what do you understand by the word head? Okay? Because in, in the Trinity... God being the head of Jesus, that's not a hierarchical order. So uh, there is a problem immediately of what you understand by the word head. Uh, And it's it's not, it's obvious when you really, really look at the concept of authority in the Bible, it's it's not there that there's a hierarchical order. Okay? Now, the main thing, and I'm going to show you a little bit of problem and the, the word love this model because it's an easier one. It's so easier. 
but I'm going to show you this problem I- immediately. And please, it's not a judgment because I know church will function like that and they do it, they do it relatively well. Okay? The, 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 question, the question for me is, do we want more? <laughs> so, that's the question. So we're not judging the church, you know? You know, I think it's, this is not doctrine of salvation, right? Okay? So um, there's hundreds of church out there who believe something differently for their structure, but they're still my brothers and sisters, and they, they believe in Christ, and, and I respect them, and I love them, right? Yes? So, but the first thing who jumped to my, my, my mind, you know, is um, here, freedom is limited, Okay, freedom is limited because um, you believe that it's the leaders who will receive uh, a vision and everybody has to serve that vision. So, there's a, so even if you train and equip the saint, you always have to fit more or less in the, in the, in the vision of the leadership. Okay, so, so my question is really, does it not restrict as well the work of the Holy Spirit? Because we were supposed to have one head, Jesus the head and because Jesus has returned he's left the Holy Spirit to work with us okay so that's the first thing a restriction of, of freedom the second thing as well is actually incidentally it's really funny but uh, you know I've, I've actually studied organization uh, as part of my economics degree all right and the first thing they will tell you if you have a hierarchy there's always an element of control introduced in a hierarchy Okay, because what happens is the person who has the vision or the authority to do something, because that comes with this notion of I have the authority for that. Don't touch that. This is my department. So fit in my department. So there's an element of control. Yes, who comes with that. And actually what happens as well is when you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, what happens is there, is there will be an element of comparison and competition because if you have desire, dream and aspiration, the only way to do what you want is to go to the top. Yes or no? Okay. It's not surprising. We see many, many church division when people disagree and say, oh, well, well I'm going to go and do my own church. Then. That's because... They headbutt each other in a hierarchical environment. Okay? So, again, I'm not saying it's not possible to do an amazing church. But my point is, hierarchical structure is not the best structure to nurture love and unity. Ha! And that's the thing we should go about. I mean, if you read the New Testament, love and unity... You know, like I said earlier on, there's not many advice on church structure, but there's a lot on how the body should love each other and demonstrate to the, the, to the world we love each other. Yeah? So and another thing it conveys really, really uh, quite quickly is that there is classes of citizen, and uh, especially if you introduce that man is of a woman, then at the bottom of the pyramid we have our children there because they are just being told by their parents. But again, this is something we need to smash because they can listen to God. You're a specialist of that. Yes, Elena Sini, yeah. They can listen to God for themselves. There's no junior Holy Spirit. Okay? So we should be releasing our children more to. There's no second-class citizen. So, and the la- last point I think is really, really posing me problem is, in, in one sense here, we, there's Jesus is the head of the church, but... Uh, there are kind of many heads between X, Y, and Z in the body and Jesus. 
So we have created other heads here, okay? And listen, I don't have lots of time to look in the detail. You can see the time is ticking. But if you look at the role of man in marriage, just briefly, yeah? If you think there's a headship in marriage, okay? You can think that. That's fine. I'm happy. But think about how it should look like. Because surely... If you think you're the head of your household, which is a really great thing, surely your headship should very much look like Jesus' headship. No? Because that's what it says in the passage, that Jesus is the head of the church and, you know, and you're the head of your husband. So how should it look like? We should look like you're loving, you're sacrificing, you empower your woman. Yeah? It should look like that. It should look like you're laying down your life. Not that you're lording over that you're the boss of the family. No, not at all. It should, like, it should look like that, like Christ loved the church. And actually, let's, let's call out the difficult verse of wife, obey your husband. Okay? Again, translation here. We, I went to see the Greek for that. And actually, the Greek word, it means woman willingly, willingly choose to follow. Willingly choose to follow. And again, if we look at that, Paul is writing in a context, a letter in a context in Ephesians. And we know those guys had many problems. Men were domineering, sometimes would put men down. Okay? And uh, in other contexts, he, he writes, and actually, you know, the Jewish context, for example, it was all about the man. So don't you think that he's doing that? He's doing, okay, listen, guys. Listen, guys, this is a general principle. You should be in your household like Christ is with the church. What is the number one principle? Love and unity. Surprise, surprise. So in marriage, love and unity is the principle. In the church, love and unity is the principle. That is not a surprise because guess what the Trinity is about? Love and unity. All right? So, this is why there is quite a few problems with this structure. Okay? And we want to move away from this idea of having authority over people. Okay? Because ultimately there's kind of few problems. If you push this model... Ultimately, I have a few questions as a person. Um, who is really building the church in this model? Is it who? Who? Who is? Because I really would like Jesus building his church, okay? And another thing is, who is really the royal priesthood? Is the body turning to the leaders and say, oh, you're my priest now, tell me what to do? Or is the body in power to do the greater work Jesus has called us to do. We are all royal priesthood. So that's another issue. And if we're looking at the elders to have all the solutions, yeah, it, does it mean that we are treating ourselves a little bit like children? Or are we growing in maturity with God? That is another question. Are we equipped to make disciples? Can we do that? 
Can you see what I'm saying there? So let me conclude. I'm going to go back to my other graph if I can. Let me conclude. Sorry, it was a bit long. We are called to a brand new way of thinking so that we will be released to do the thing that Jesus did in a greater measure. Okay? You can disagree with me, that's fine. But how can we shift? How can we really reach the world? I think it will only come when people grow big and free in their calling. So the objective really is our freedom so that no matter who you are, where you come from, you know and you know and you know that God has called you to preach the gospel, that he's called you to heal the sick, that he's called you to cast out the demon, that he's called you to make disciples, that actually we will love each other so much. It says in the, in the, in the New Testament, we will love each other so much that the world will envy us. And that would be like, wow, I want to be part of this. Yeah? Do you know the reality? Freedom is not easy. Who knows that? Freedom is not easy because with freedom comes great responsibility. With freedom comes like, oh, hold on. Oh, I need now to hear God from myself. I need to learn to renew my mind and believe. Believe rightly what he says. Okay? Walking with, walking with the Spirit by the Spirit requires us to be directly connected to the wine. To the wine. To the vine. To the vine. You, you have to forgive me, I'm French. It's one of them I always get wrong. Yes, but we have to be connected to the vine by ourselves. Okay? And sometimes it's tougher. Because sometimes we rather go say, oh, boss, just tell me what to do. Have you been in this situation? Oh, I don't want, just tell me what to do. No, actually, in this situation, you as well growing in maturity and God can speak to you and put things in your heart. Okay? Of course, leadership is important. You know, we're not putting leadership uh, down. It's vital, important, uh, you know, as to equip the saint. Had to bring more life, you know, and equip the scent, okay? But what is really interesting as well in the New Testament is, have you noticed Jesus says he's not really looking for servants, but friends. So we better get used to, wow, I can do this. I am a co-heir with Christ. But this journey, guys, is so much more exciting because where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, there is joy, there is life in abundance, there is resources in abundance, not just what the person is giving me to work with, but there is abandoned resources, okay? There is dreams that surpasses our understanding. Uh, there's things that God will give us that we didn't even imagine. All of that is true. Why wouldn't you not want to be part of a life like that? Yeah, even if it's a bit scary at first, why would you not want that? The freedom of hearing God and re really being an instrument of Christ. That's the call on our lives. Amen. Amen. Amen.